If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Have you thought about what it means to be Black in the Latinx community? Do you know that you can be Black in the Latinx community? And there's a term called Afro-Latinx. We have all these general names, the mulatto, the, you know, all those. But even within the Spanish-speaking culture, we just can't say, I am negra. And that is not an insult. And we need to start using that word without being afraid of offending anyone. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. You just heard from Sandra Uber. Born and raised in Panama City, Panama, she moved to the U.S. to work in industrial engineering, but actually found her calling in health and social services. She's been instrumental in developing community health worker or promotores de salud programs through her organization. So far in this series on the Latinx community, we have covered Latinx history and DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And today, we'll be talking about the Afro-Latinx identity. When I was organizing this series, I brought up my idea to the Latinx Health Board, a group of Latinx leaders bridging the gap between healthcare and communities. After I pitched my idea, I asked them, what am I missing? Sandra quickly chimed in. She said, what about being Black in the Latinx community? I have to admit, I completely missed it. This is a common experience. What did you think of when I said we're having a Latine series? Did you know that approximately 24% of the U.S. Latino population identifies as Afro-Latino? 24%. Despite this significant number, Afro-Latinos are often left out of conversation surrounding Latinx identity. We think of being Black as different from being Latino. This is a problem. The Afro-Latinx community faces unique challenges due to their intersectional identity, being both Black and Latino. They face discrimination and colorism. Have you heard of the word colorism before? Colorism is a specific prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone among people of the same ethnic or racial group. I know this personally being a dark-skinned Indian. There are many lighter-skinned people in the Indian community, and the definition of beautiful and privilege is often associated with lighter skin. In fact, there's a whole industry on helping people become lighter. You may or may not know this, but there's a cream called Fair and Lovely or Fair and Handsome. I think they rebranded it to Glow and Lovely or something. But the main active ingredient in that cream is niacinamide, which was patented by Unilever as a melanin suppressor. And for decades and decades, people were buying this cream to look lighter. Because melanin in your skin is not beautiful, not wanted, not appreciated. That's colorism. As healthcare providers, I think it's imperative that we understand all facets of the Latin identity to provide culturally inclusive care for this population. This means understanding the Afro-Latinx identity too. You'll hear from Sandra today about her personal experience with colorism, what it means to hold the Afro-Latinx identity. I hope it gives a better starting point for empathy, respect, and cultural understanding so you can care for your Afro-Latinx patients better. Sandra, bienvenidos. Bienvenidos. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show today, and I've been excited to talk about the Afro 
Latino Latinx identity today. Before we get started, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. My name is Sandra Solano Hewer, and I'm the proud daughter of Domingo Solano and Sevilla Pinilla. And I was born and raised in Panama City, Panama. And about 36 years ago, I can't believe it's been that long. I was I was living in Panama and there was a lot of instability during that time in 1985, 1986, with the Noriega military regime at that time. So my parents decided to send me to the United States to study industrial engineering. And they sent me to Wichita, Kansas, to Wichita State University. And even though it wasn't like the happening place, it was a lovely place for a very sheltered young woman that was trying to figure out her place in the world. One of the stories I like to tell insofar as that transition from Panama to where I'm at here now in Washington State is that I left Panama as Sandra Solano, just a student of Panama. And once I landed in Kansas, my whole world changed because then I had to identify or was referred to as Hispanic. And then from there, once I was done with school, I started working, got a job in California, in Los Angeles. And then when I moved over there, there was another shift and I was then a Latina. Then now probably the people would say Latin or Latinx. And then I followed my journey up here to Washington. And then when I got here, he got all mixed up because there weren't very many people of color. There weren't very many Latinos. And definitely there was some misunderstanding in me and in everyone else around me what I was. Because people would come up and say, what are you? Because in those days, I could have been Indian. I could have been all kinds of different cultures, but people never identify me as Latina and definitely not as Black. So that's how I ended up here, being part of a Latinx self-work, and that's how I met you. Thank you. Yeah, there's so many things we could talk about here, but what I want to focus this second is this question of what are you? People like asking that, which seems so obviously, I don't know what it is, denigrating or dismissing of this other person's identity because it's like, hey, like you look really strange and I can't put you into a box. Tell me, what are you? But I'm curious, when people ask you that, how do you respond? What do you say? It depends. As I've gotten older, I think I have understood the context that people come into asking that question. And some people are genuinely just curious because they have been trained, like you said, to put people in boxes. And some of it is just so they know what language you prefer or how you want to be referred to. And there's some people that definitely will determine how they treat you based on which box they can put you in. So in my younger years, it used to drive me crazy. And I used to feel so dismissed because the obvious answer to that question is, what are you? I'm a human being standing here in front of you. But I think that's a given because we couldn't be having this conversation if that wasn't the case. But I started listening to my God and making assumptions, just like what the assumptions were made about me. And it got more difficult when my daughter was born because her father is first generation of German parents, and she's very light-skinned. And I was asked quite a few times if I was the nanny or if I was the maid or where I got her from. So that was really difficult because she didn't look anything like me, at least when she was little. So now when people ask me that, then I typically go, what exactly is it that you want to know? Do you want to know where I'm from? Do you want to know where my accent is from? Do you want to know what I believe? What is it exactly that you want to know? And then I get into the, I identify as Afro-Latina. That means that I'm descendant of African peoples that were enslaved and brought to Latin America and the Caribbean and who now reside in the United States. Because in Panama, I don't have to say I'm an Afro-Latina. That's just 
a given. We all were mixed. But in the United States, it's important to clarify that I'm a Black person of Latin American origin and African ancestry living in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. That's just so generous of you. And I think we could all use more generosity these days because it's hard to hear people say, what are you? Over and over. And experiences of your own child. People are like, hey, you must be the nanny or maid because that can't be yours. So that's so tough. And I'm not saying it wasn't tough for you, but your approach and your response is so very generous. I'm like, okay. It wasn't me. then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't then. It wasn't then. A lot of people got the spicy side of me. But I think what ended up happening is as I understood my own, my own shadows, my own demons, and what I brought from Panama, here because even though the majority of people in Panama can trace their ancestry to the diaspora of African people, it's not without its challenges too. So I think that what's happened for me is that I've been understanding more and more that if somebody grew up here, and that's not an excuse, and that's what I do, the social justice work that I do, it doesn't mean that you get a pass because you don't know any better. But I also have to take into consideration that if you were raised in the United States, you are indoctrinated from the moment you're conceived to see things that way. So I would rather educate you and see if you want to come along this journey and learn more, or if you just need to see whether you're going to hire me or not, whether you give me the loan or not. And we can't change that from a place of, of hate and resentment. And I don't judge anyone who feels that way because I came with a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunities that many of my community don't have. So I think that because of that, I focus more on how I can make this easier for my daughter. Cause even though she's lighter skin and passes for white, she also has other issues that, that come about because people look at her and go, okay, what is the deal here? So I think generosity is a kind word, but I think it's survival. It's really learning how to manage and how to navigate the system without adding to to what's already in there. Yeah. Thanks for rephrasing that. Okay. Let's do some context building, and then we can talk about your identity as Afro-Latino, Latinx, Latina. We can use any of those. I'll say from now on forward, just know that we can use any word and I'm trying to be as inclusive as possible. So statistically, 130 million Afro-Latinos live in Latin America and the Caribbean. It's approximately 20% of the total population of the region, which is why, Sandra, when you said when you're there, no one's like, hey, you're Afro-Latina because one out of five people are you. (laughs) They're not going to call you out as being different. And for example, in Brazil, around 55% of the population identify as Afro-Brazilian. And there's a large population in Colombia, Venezuela, Cuba, Dominican Republic, and Panama, where you're from. The countries where there's probably less Afro-Latinas are Costa Rica and Uruguay, where I think it's less than 5% or so. Most of Latin America, this is an essential part of people's identity living there. And where this starts is that the identity of Afro-Latina is complex, multifaceted, and spans centuries because we know that indigenous people were in these countries for a long time. And then the enslavement of Africans started. And many of the enslaved Africans, about 80 to 90%, were brought to Caribbean and South America. I think we don't acknowledge that enough because we really focus on North America for this history. Does that sound right to you as I'm starting this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that it's important to remember is that term started percolating in the 70s. And it was because the Black activists in Brazil sparked a social political movement to fight for recognition in the country's census because Brazil at that time did not recognize its Black citizens in the census. So it was important that we started recognizing that even though a lot of enslaved Africans were brought to North America, the majority were brought particularly to Brazil. And it's in everything. It's part of their identity and their life, but they didn't even have rights 
When you start thinking about what happened in the 20th century, when Black immigrants started coming from nations, particularly to the United States, where it had been sold the idea of racial democracy, and then we get here and we find out that's really, there is segregation, there is violence, and as a Black person, depending on what your ethnic background is, you start experiencing that segregation, that violence, in ways similar than what you have seen in some Latin American countries, like in South America. There's some book, and I can't remember, I think it's called Black and Latin American. You see the map of how 200 years ago, 300 years ago, there were free and enslaved Black people all over Latin America. But then as the European influence started to trickle in more and more, they started moving towards the coast. And there's some places where now there is hardly anyone that identifies as Black. So it's a new thing as labeled, but it's not a new thing in insofar as the experience. And when I got here to Washington State in the late 90s, I realized that Blackness and Latinidad, meaning the Latino part of me, were not mutually exclusive. That even the idea, because for many of us Latino, we don't understand that because race and ethnicity are one and the same. We don't tend to divide it. But being a Latino or Latino refers to ethnicity as opposed to race. So educating people that both white and black Latinos actually exist is part of unpacking that whole thing that we're talking about when we talk about Afro-Latinos. Yeah, thanks, Sandra. I would say to highlight, sometimes we fall into the story of all Black histories, enslaved African history, when there were free and Black folks all of Latin America, and that changed as racism spread globally and the Atlantic slave trade started to support the global economy and all of those things. As you note, the second point is that Black and white people's understanding of it is sometimes limited, so it becomes mutually exclusive. Like, Latino or Latino can't be Black. And I think one thing that came out recently was that, oh, Latinos support the Black Lives Matter movement. And you're like, are there Black folks in the Latino community? It's like the separation of, hey, Latinos are separate from the Black Lives Matter movement, and we want to show solidarity with you. And there's Black folks within that community that I think that sometimes felt like they were their identity wasn't acknowledged in there. And I think I remember when it all started a few years ago with the Black Lives Matter, we were asking in community and organizations and places where we met, what was our role? What was our part, whether you were Afro-Latino or not? And I think that one of the strengths of, unfortunately, of many movements is that even within the movement, sometimes you can find is the trauma Olympics, what we went through is worse than what you went through and you didn't have this happen and I did have this happen and they treat Latinos better than they treat Black. And so all these conversations, and for some of us, it really awakened the need to understand our own privilege as Latinos and as Black Latinos, but also to learn a way to relate because there are a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels in the way once you get here is it doesn't, people don't give you a pass because you're a black Latino, you're black and that's it. So there was a lot of conflict trying to figure out what our place was. And I don't know that that, that question is completely answered, but we're still digging in because even between ourselves, within community, between the Latino community. There is colorism, there is racism, there is anti-blackness, there are all these things. So, so I think that what that did was just bring it up. Let's call a spade a spade and let's see what my experience can support your experience. And I felt like the world was telling me, you can either be black or Latino, but you couldn't be both. And I didn't know how to explain being both. And then when you start thinking about language. People from Latin America speak French, speak Spanish, Portuguese. And so it's really, it's really complex, but I think that brought it to a head and we're still struggling with figuring out what Black Lives Matter means to us 
as immigrants and as flat people. Yeah. You said a few things there that I want to focus on or highlight this time around. One is the idea of colorism and anti-blackness, because some of this becomes jargon because we hear it so much and then now it's become polarized. Nobody's actually talking to each other when you're using these words. But let's just focus on this experience because a lot of communities hold this. I think it's for a specific reason. And then in the community too, you want to underplay your darkness as much as you can. And I think that's partly in the Latino culture too, because people who look lighter and are whiter are treated better. I don't know what your experience when you were growing up was, but mine was certainly like distancing myself from blackness. Like don't wear clothes that look too black because I'm already a dark man and you're already blurring that line and you need to be really clear that you're not black. And that message from the Indian community was clear to me. One, just within the community and family dynamics. And two, within the Indian community, there's like a hierarchy of lighter skinned Indians and darker skinned Indians. So I felt like I didn't even fit in with the Indian community sometimes because I was with a lot of Northern Indians and I could feel myself feeling treated differently. I'm not sure what the source of it is, but it felt like I didn't fully fit in. I'm curious how that resonates with you as you were growing up and trying to understand your blackness, right? I think it's been a journey for you. And what did that look like? It definitely has been a journey and it started, to be honest, about 21 years ago when I found myself pregnant with my baby and I just knew that I didn't want him or her to have to choose between her father's culture and my culture or we had no idea. It was a throw the die and see what she was going to look like. But that's where my serious journey into understanding anti-blackness and all that started because I wanted her to have a different experience than I had when I was growing up, even though both my parents have um, our descendants at some point in the diaspora of people that were enslaved in their own countries. And Panama is so diverse that it's really difficult sometimes to trace those roots. But I knew from the beginning, I heard, especially my dad, say, you have to make sure that we improve the race, that we better the race. And what that meant, if you stay in Panama, you better marry somebody that's light-skinned because that will give your children a better chance. And he wasn't wrong. That's the sad thing. I hated that he said that. I hated that that was part of the construct that I came to this country with. But he wasn't wrong. And the experience my daughter being the past is as white, her experience has been so much easier, so much better and less confrontationally, even though she's a little bit of an activist herself. And she's aware of her privilege, but her life has been better. Growing up, I also realized that my favorite human being that was my grandmother, totally she looked African. She was just beautiful, but very much African features. And and we were very close to her, but she never came to any of the graduations and things that we did. And I never understood why until I came to the States and somebody that I befriended that was Afro-Latina herself started telling me the story about the Black grandma that in Latin American countries we keep in the closet that we don't bring out, just talking about what you mentioned, that distancing yourself from part of who you are, because then it makes it obvious that if you see my grandmother, then you see me, right? Coming over here and 21, 22 years ago, starting to think, how am I going to impact this? Because now I can do it. I'm away from my family. I can start with 23 and me. I can start doing all those things. But the most important thing for me was that I didn't want my child to grow up without examining some of these ideas, without having those conversations. And I remember she was not even 10 when she came up to me. I'd never heard the term before, white passing. And she said that to me. She said that she recognized that she passed for white. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how do you even know that? I didn't even know the term. So eventually I joined Afro Latino Seattle, MAS, which is exactly that, an organization that supports 
and lifts all the important things that Afro-Latinos have contributed to the culture and to the United States. And little by little, I started realizing some of those things were living in me. Some of those anti-Blackness messages were alive and well in me, and I needed to examine what that meant in the larger context, particularly in the work that I wanted to do. I think that I had the luxury of doing that because I had a white husband and it was, it's so weird because it it was almost like he vouched for me when we were together. Nobody followed me at the store. Everybody was super nice. And that wasn't quite the same when I was by myself. So I started realizing that even though I hated that my dad had said, we have to make the race better by marrying up, which meant marrying white, that there was a part of me that was eager to come out. That's the part that loves to dance, the part that is loud, the part that is fun, the part that that is not always welcome in some of the, the spaces. But it was easier for me because I have role models like Celia Cruz, Rosie Perez, when I fall, Elizabeth Acevedo, that were Latinas, that were Black and that were successful. So I thought, okay, how do I direct my energy into discovering more, unpacking more, healing more, and being accountable for the times in which I was in my best self from that perspective? Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, mental health benefits when we don't have to suppress one part of our identity as being shameful. Connecting with you in this point, too, if I have a white person in front of me, my dark body, I'll say, not to confuse with black folks, my dark body is less scary and less of a threat if there's a white person coming along with me. Uh, is it you know? something that is just amazing that in the popular culture, there's still that belief whether it's subconscious or not, because it wasn't subconscious for my dad. My dad is all out there with that. But that if you marry someone lighter than you, you have a better chance for upward mobility. You are safer. And when I finally realized that privilege that came to me, the same story you are talking about, I realized that we live in a race-conscious society in the United States and racism and colorism not only have profound effects on us and our life, but it also has effects on our health and how mental health, physical health, though, for me, they're all the same. But our babies are not faring better than African-American babies. And doesn't matter. I have a friend who recently divorced and she took her uh, Spanish-sounding last name because she could not bear the idea of still feeling that oppression from her white ex-husband. But she also recognized that it made, because her first name, just like mine, was a relatively neutral. Her last name was German, just like mine. And so many more doors were open. And it happens to me till this day. I'm talking to somebody and then we get to meet and they look at me, they go, oh, hey. And I know what that oh hi means is that they were expecting to meet someone that was white with the name that I have. Hey, you're saying, Sandra Osandra. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they get so weirded out and they get uncomfortable because they know, I know what just happened, but this never stopped me from continuing whatever. I've never lost a job because of it, but I can see the person just like, holy mac, I was not prepared for that. And why should it be that big of a deal, right? But we're curious and that's okay to be curious that you have, I don't know, Jennifer Sanchez. Do they speak Spanish? Do they speak English? Are they married? But I don't think about those things, but white America does. They do think about those things. Yeah, yeah, so true. Let's see where I want to go next. I want to emphasize the point that Black identity does not contradict Latinidad identity. I talk about all the terms that have been used that's present in all these countries. I'm just going to talk about a few to talk about how this Black identity has been mixed with other identities that they have specific names. I think people, some are pejoratives, I'm going to just say that, but 
People have heard of mulatto, right? Mixed African and European ancestry. Zambo is another one, African and indigenous ancestry. Cafuzo, that's a Brazilian name for African and indigenous. Mestizo, that's often used in Latin America, mixed European and indigenous identity, and some African and indigenous ancestry. And then there's so many other words like this in Nicaragua, Garifuno, uh, Marabua in Haitian. I don't know if probably you're more familiar with these terms, but I don't know. Well, those are the names that you can pronounce in English within our own cultures. We fight so hard to not call someone black. And I was asking an interpreter that was going to interpret for a presentation. And the individual was from South America and said, are you sure you want me to use the word black? Because we try to avoid that at any cost. And we have coffee with milk. We have morena, trigueño. I mean, you feel like you're at the counter of a makeup store with all these different names just to avoid saying black. And I was in a meeting a few years ago and I just said out loud, I am so proud of being black. And this woman sitting right next to me, Latina from South America, and I won't say the name of the country, but she says to me, don't say that. You're not black. And I'm looking at her like, have you met me? And she took that comment like I was putting myself down and she had no idea what she had done wrong by saying that. All that to say that we have all these general names, the mulatto, the taino, all those. But each one within the Spanish-speaking culture, we have all these other ways that caramel, but we just can't say black. And that's what that organization, Maris, has helped me to find in myself the strength to be comfortable with saying negra. I am Negra, and that is not an insult, and we need to start using that word without being afraid of offending anyone. Yeah, that's an excellent point, because either the community itself or other people external looking at the community want to use a black as terminology for people who've been historically enslaved and a history of that in North America. And we don't acknowledge the 90% of People who were brought to South America and other Latin American countries who are African of origin, who suffered through enslavement, who fought for revolutions, fought for independence, became part of the Latina community who also hold this identity of being Black. Yeah, yeah. And I think that one question that I always ask myself, when I did the 23 in me, I found out that I was pretty much even 33, 33, and 33, somewhere in around that. 33% European from Portugal, not even from Spain, which surprised me. 33 or so African from West Africa, which that totally makes sense. And then indigenous from the area in, in Panama. But then you start seeing the little numbers, the 1%. And the 0.5%, and it's so much wider than that. And I have actually Indian in me. I have... Welcome. Old, yeah. Welcome to our community. <laughs> you know what? The straightest thing about that is that my great-grandmother was very dark-skinned, but she had straight hair. And in my community, my country, straight hair goes with white people, and curly hair goes with dark people. So there was this mystery in my family, how we had someone that was so dark skinned, yet she had straight hair. I solved the mystery because it's because she was of South Asian descent. Her ancestors were from somewhere in India. And that was so rewarding to me that it was actually a palpable, a tangible thing I got out of finding out there was this mystery about where she came from and why she had the features that she had. So even within the family, nobody wanted to find out. Nobody wanted to know because she was dark, but she was better because she had straight hair. Yeah. Okay. Recap. Accepting Blackness identity within our individual selves is important. Also within the community. Not just this prevailing sense that 
African ancestry is like a historical artifact. And third, that holding that Afro-Latino identity also comes with discrimination and hardship that I think sometimes isn't identified personally because you're navigating this in-between space where you're either a Latino or you're black, right? You have to decide or people are forcing you to decide. But we know that Afro-Latinos face higher rates of poverty and discrimination than other groups that are considered Latino, have lower levels of educational attainment and political representation as well. And the Pew Research Center did a study that more Afro-Latinos than other Latinos say they have been unfairly stopped by police during the year prior to the survey. And Afro-Latinos have been criticized for speaking Spanish in public because, hey, like, you shouldn't speak in Spanish anyway, why are you doing it now? There's all these different ways, I think, in daily lives that you're experiencing discrimination. I don't know how personal that sounds to you, Sandra, but just the research and well, survey I, show that. I think that you may find this hard to believe, but before my daughter was driving, I would take her places. And sometimes when I went to pick her up, I would just park outside and wait for her to come out. I will let her know I'll be there at such and such time. Since before she was driving herself, I would be sitting, knitting, reading, eating something in my car in some regular neighborhood around here. And I got the police called on me twice just because I was parked and they deemed that I had no business just being parked there. Like one was my business. And one time, I mean, I'm following this thing waiting for my daughter in the car and I get this flashlight on my face. I've never been pulled over for anything other than a ticket, but that was really scary. And the guy said, I'm sorry I have to do this to you, but the neighbors have called. They want to know what's your business around here. And this was like five years ago. We're not talking about 30, 40 years ago. And experiences like that, it just reminds me that we're not done doing the work that we need to do. I've always, of course, have been polite, but but it's just that idea of having to be looking over my shoulder and trying to second guess what other people, especially in white neighborhoods, would think about who I am and what I'm doing there and whether I have a right to be there or not, even though in the moment I'm not posing any danger and needing really what am I going to go crazy with my eating <laughs> needle? That was the second time that three people in different moments came to ask me what I was doing there. I just don't even know that I could do that to someone. They're there. They're not doing anything. What's my problem? So it continues to be an issue to reckon with. But I think that it also helps me be more attuned when, when my community goes through because I have the privilege of being a U.S. citizen and I can speak English and I have a car and I have a driver's license and I have more tools to protect myself than the people that I serve health. And I, I have a lot of respect for the stories that are shared with me because I know if with a college education, a good job, speaking English, being a U.S. citizen, and all this other perks that, that I see as privilege that I have, I'm still not spare the assumptions of some of my white brothers and sisters in community when they decide that I don't belong where I'm at. I don't belong in their world and I need to justify and explain what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. What has this bed for your health? Hey, I think that because I work in the system and I support community and accessing healthcare through my job, I'm aware that Latinos tend to have health outcomes that are better than those of their non-Latino white counterparts, even though they have lower average income and education. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with what is called the Hispanic paradox. And it's a way in which protective factors keep us, once we immigrate, keeps us healthy for a certain amount of time. And I haven't watched the video in a long time, but I think it's 20, 25 years. And then we assimilate and then have all the habits that, that make this society unhealthy. But this paradox, unfortunately, does not apply to Afro-Latinos. And studies show that Afro-Latinos have a shorter life expectancy 
than both their white Latino counterparts and non-Latino white Americans. So when I think about pregnant Afro-Latinas being at a greater risk of experiencing preterm birth and having newborns that are low in birth weight, Afro-Latinos are more likely to worry about those things and report that their health is either fair or poor. For me, the impact has been mostly from the mental health aspect, the depression and sometimes having to work 60 hours to prove that that I'm good enough at what I'm doing while my counterparts are working 40 hours or having to justify wanting to to have a raise. And that's all very stressful. And sometimes I think, hey, you're getting a two for here. I can speak English and I can speak Spanish. I, I'm like two people in one. I'm not saying that they have <laughs> yeah, to be yeah, double. Yeah. But I'm thinking this culture doesn't appreciate and value those things. And when the only way that it works, which is weighed really heavy on me for many years, is that tokenism. That instead of developing a relationship with the community you want to know more about, they pick me or someone else that is an easy way of communicating, never going back to community, never wanting to do a relationship with community, just mining for information. And that has been really difficult because I have had to make hard decisions about they're offering this much money. And I know this money could mean mammograms or could mean pap smears for my community, but I have to swallow the idea that I have to be the going between. So what started happening was I started saying, no, if you want to do this survey, this study, this whatever, you're going to have to come down. You're going to have to introduce yourself and I will be the person. It's like inviting somebody to your home. You don't just march in and say, I'm here, give me what you have, and then you leave. You just don't do it that way. And trying to train academia and the healthcare system that there is value in developing those relationships. And the more I bring those in the community that are identified as leaders in the way we identify leadership and then bring them to the table, even if I have to walk some of that road with them, it's helped me because I can't speak for every Afro-Latino or every Latino. And it's a huge responsibility when community says, could you please sit at this table at this board or whatever, because we need the help. It's a huge responsibility. and I don't take it lightly, but I think we won't move forward unless we bring everyone. And if you have to get an interpreter, you get an interpreter. But then that proves to me that there is interest on doing that. But it's been really difficult, especially when we're talking about our undocumented brothers and sisters and how those of us who can't easily be kicked out of the country can step up and be on front and center to move those ideas, to move that equity forward, because I cannot ask someone who's undocumented, working three jobs, barely speaks English, to be at the front of the line protesting for what is right and what is fair. So all that has an impact on my mental health, what I can do and how much I can do it, because we're talking about people. You're not making little widgets or doorknobs or these are people's lives we're talking about. So thanks for sharing all that. I maybe my follow up question to that is, have you had a good experience or you could even talk about a bad experience when somebody in the healthcare system hasn't acknowledged your Afro Latino identity? I don't even know what that looks like, but I'm curious from you wanting to be seen and known in the way you want to, if someone has done that especially well, or again, badly as a counterpoint, so we don't do that. I think that curiosity is something that I always appreciate. And maybe it's just because I have an amazing support team of my family and who are our providers, and we're very careful who we choose. And I think that I have been part of the push to change the survey information, the demographic information that is requested and how we disaggregate some things. I'm seeing a lot of changes. I think I don't have a whole lot of negatives because I'm a good advocate for myself, but I do remember 
And it was just so confusing because I love this nurse that was one of my providers a few years ago. And we were talking about using certain kind of needles. And I love her. And then she loves me. We've known each other for a long time. And she says to me, when I ask her, get me a baby needle because I'm not in the mood today to be poked too hard. And she says, you know how studies or something to that effect show that the black people have thicker skin, so they don't need to, they don't feel the pain or something like that. And I sat there and I did not know what to say because I love this woman and I know she loves me. And I don't know where the heck she got that from. But then not even a month later, I was at a race conference and Dr. Ben Danielson that I adore talked about all those things about how we are given less pain medication when we go to the emergency room. And I was just stunned and I didn't know what to say because I came out of left field and I didn't say anything. I froze. And all I could do was it took like months before I got the nerve to find an article about demystifying those things. And I just faxed it to her. I couldn't even, because I'm just thinking this is going to ruin it. Because what else have you not told me? Oh my God. But I didn't know that was even a thing. And then Dr. Daniel's son had a list of them. And I'm like, OMG, these people go to medical school and it's 2022 or 20 whatever. And we're still passing on those myths. I can tell you my skin is not any thicker than anybody else's. And I am a big baby. So I just didn't know what to do. I think that was probably the most uncomfortable. And I was not my best self because what I would have done if it hadn't been the situation that it was, and I'm like, she's going to poke me. I better not make her mad. But I'm thinking, how do I even, how do I even start this conversation? But other than that, it's been really good. And one experience I had last year that I thought was really good was when I went to have my mammogram. My mother had been diagnosed with stage four breast cancer in 2021. She did excellent. It's full recovered. But when I reported that on my the information, the woman said, now that you have shared that as a, a Black Latina, and she explained to me where my numbers, what my risks were because of that. As a matter of fact, like she recognized that it was important that I knew that because I was just like, when I did it, I was just thinking, I'm so lucky my mother survived. And I'm not thinking about what the impact is on my own health. And she was very kind. She called someone to double check that her numbers were right. So she's you can miss any mammograms. You can be late, blah, blah, blah. But in a way that she honored that it wasn't a liability that I was Black and Latina, but that I needed to have the facts. And that felt really good. That's good. That's a good example. Thank you, Sandra. Anything else you feel to be sad that we haven't said or talked about? I think I told you more than that. I think that the medical community does a disservice to their students and future medical staff when they don't have this context, this information to rely upon. And it's not fair to expect every doctor to know every culture and to know the difference between the no, but I think curiosity and asking if the person put Latino, how do you like me to refer to you uh, Latina, Latine, Latinx, or Afro-Latina? And to get a little curious about what's important to them and what culturally is important to know about that. For example, a doctor asked me once, why do you always carry your kids everywhere in general? We feel that we wanted these children. Why would we be leaving them with anyone else? They're our responsibility. So they go everywhere with us. But I really appreciated that it wasn't judgmental. He was curious. So he could understand why he goes to, to take care of this woman and there's three children and a baby in the room with them. And instead of going, oh my God, why can't they just leave the kids at home? Understanding why, as an example, why we do that. And that takes time. Too, and patience and grace. And I think that it will be important, like information like this, it's important to have. So you have a little bit of context. And just like we do, we know, we know different 
cultures and different ways of doing things because that's what you need to do to survive. Yeah, that's a good takeaway point. And I like to call out, sometimes curiosity gets a negative perception because people think of curiosity as the question of what are you? I think there's a type of curiosity which exists to satisfy your own thirst for knowledge and putting people into boxes. And another type of curiosity so you'll understand somebody better to care for them. And I think that intentionality really comes out the way you ask the questions, what type of questions you're asking. So making sure you don't dismiss curiosity and start judging people because you're worried about asking about people's identity. And making assumptions is the most dangerous thing in medicine, I think, or anything for that matter, because you would give them that person what you think they need based on an assumption, but if you knew that their grandmother was African, maybe there are questions that you would ask that you wouldn't ask someone that doesn't have that background. So I think it all comes together in the service. And I know you have 15 minutes to get to know this person. It's not easy, but being prepared and knowing what you want to know would save you some time. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for, for considering me. And you have any other questions, you know where to find me. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. If you like this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person so they can also hear it. I'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.